You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm tickled pink to introduce you to Annabel Monahan. Annabelle is the author of two young adult novels, A Girl Named Digit, optioned by the Disney Channel, and the sequel, Double Digit. She's also the author of Does This Volvo Make My Butt Look Big, a selection of laugh-out-loud columns that appeared in the Huffington Post, The Week, and The Rye Record. She joins me today to talk about Nora Goes Off Script, which is her adult debut novel. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Annabelle. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Annabelle, I'm happy to have you here, and I can't wait to dig into your story. But I'm going to start by asking you the question I ask everybody, which is, uh, Annabelle, where does your story as a writer begin? I don't want to take you back half a century, but I have, I've wanted to be a writer since I could read. I always wanted to be a writer. When I was a little kid, I would make up stories, sort of how I made sense of the world. Um, and I was a good English student in high school, and I chose a university because it had a really good English program, and I was, you know, on the path to making my dreams come true. And when I was a senior in college, I noticed that all of my friends were moving to New York City. And then I thought, oh, you know, you can't get somebody to hire you to be a novelist. Like I, if I move to New York city, I won't have food or shelter. <laughs> right. um, and that's when, you know, that's almost like the first step in becoming an adult when you realize that like, not everybody walks onto an NBA basketball team. So I went and got a job in investment banking and I went and worked on wall street for a couple of years. And I, my plan was that I was going to be a banker by day and a writer by night, which was a ridiculous plan also. So I was just working all the time. And then it was sort of interesting. So I went to business school and I got an MBA in finance. And then I went back and worked in banking and really relinquished the, my childhood dream because come on, like that was a ridiculous thing. And, you know, you got to have a 401k. So it wasn't until I was 37 years old and I was at home with three children that I actually started writing again. So I am the late start story. That's I, I hear all types of stories, but you know the commonalities really are this like drive from a young age, like having a love of reading from a young age and kind of being mystified by authors or excited by authors. Do you remember like when you were young, what what you were excited by to read, like what you were reading back in those days? Yeah, I remember reading Heartburn. I remember reading women's stories that I thought were told in a way that was so clever. 
and I would reread. You know, I wasn't reading for the story. I was reading for the paragraph. Like, God, that's a great paragraph. I want to reread this. And, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, just with regard to my own children. I think that when everybody's nine years old, they know what they're going to be, what they should be when they grow up. And then something happens to us. You know, we like go off track, but it's like, if you could get back to who you were when you were nine years old, that's what you should be doing when you're 50. Wow. That's, that's an interesting thing to think about. I spent last week at a retreat trying to get in touch with my inner child. And I'm trying to think what I wanted to be when I was nine years old. It was probably an airline pilot. I think back well, then- And was... look at what you're wearing on your head right now. <laughs> you look like an airline pilot. I'll tell you what though. I took one flying lesson in Chatham, Massachusetts about eight or nine years ago. And I quickly realized um, probably would not have been the greatest airline pilot because I was scared to death once they gave me the controls. I'm okay, like, oh. then I think you take it a step further. Like, what did that represent to you? Oh, yes, probably escapism. Yeah, <laughs> probably escapism. I wanted about books. Wanted to get the hell out of Dodge, and yes, I, I do definitely escape through my novels. But so I'm trying to reconcile this notion of wanting to be a writer and then choosing a career in investment banking, because like the two to me, I mean, if you told me that you wanted to be a writer and then you got a job in advertising. I'd be like, okay, I could see the compromise there or as, as a journalist, but investment banking is like a different animal. Did you, did you have like a head for finance when you were in college? I did, didn't and I don't. I'm interested in it. And I am, I am uniquely able to be super interested in stuff that I'm bad at. Like yeah. I don't mind going out and trying to hit a tennis ball when I never hit the tennis ball. But it was interesting and I wasn't good at it, but it was someplace where I could I could understand the path to the future. And there's something really terrifying about a creative life because you could really not make it. Oh, sure. And you really could have nothing to eat. And yeah. that is not something that, you know, that's not in my like psychological makeup to be comfortable with that. I'm not a risk taker. So it took me until I kind of felt comfortable in my life to take the risk to write. Right. So tell me, so let's go back to when you were, you said 37 years old. Yep, yep. Home with three kids. What sparked the, um, the thought to, to start writing? So I never, I never would have done it if it had not been for my friend, Elizabeth Wolf, who I was just getting to know at the time. And she and I wrote this first book together. And it was a, it's called Click the Girl's Guide to Knowing What You Want and Making It Happen. Very long title. I would avoid long titles for anyone listening. Published by Simon & Schuster. And it was a guide to positive thinking for teenage girls. And we were in no way qualified to write this book, but we were talking about it. You know, we were talking about, you know, changing your attitude. And Elizabeth said, God, don't you wish you knew this when you were 15? And I thought, yes, I do. And then I ended the conversation and she kept thinking about it. And she was very persistent. She said, let's write, let's write a book. Like she doesn't have any of these kind of fears that I have. And so at her insistence, we sat down and wrote a book. I, I never would have written that book if I hadn't done it with someone else. Yeah. What was your process? I mean, so writing a book, I know writing a book, writing your first book is hard. Writing a first book with somebody else where you have to collaborate and kind of align on, I imagine had its challenges, but what, what was your process for writing that? It was bizarre. I mean, it was, I think I may have blacked <laughs> out in the middle. We, people say that they can't tell who wrote what, that maybe we had the same kind of voice in the book. But I'd write a piece, she'd write a piece. There was a section in the back that was a workbook and she'd work on that when I worked on some of the stuff in the beginning. And it just went back and forth until it came together. I mean, our poor editor, 
I just, I can't even imagine. I, I really admire people who are lifelong writing companions because it's, it, you really have to share a mind to do that. Yeah. yeah. It's like being a songwriter. It's like, you know, being in, you know, a band where bands write songs together, you know, like the Eagles or something. And, you know, that's great because you get great music, you get different perspectives, but there's also like a lot of tension in those situations too. Did you feel that or no? Not so much the tension, but just the, you know, not, you can't keep, like when I'm writing fiction and I actually prefer to write fiction, I have a whole story in my head that I'm trying to get out. And the more I talk about it with other people, the more that story sort of gets interrupted or, or poisoned. Uh, so I don't talk about it. But if you're collaborating with somebody, you have to be talking about what you're writing all the time. And you also have to have a plan. So yeah. I found that very challenging because I don't actually write with a plan. So what was the process getting that published? So you, you two collaborate on it. Did you find an agent? Did you, I mean, obviously you must've because it was published by a big house, but what was that yeah, learning so experience I, like? Yeah, my best advice to everybody is be lucky. That's your, that's job one. We sent it out to a bunch of agents and it occurred to me while we were sending it out to a bunch of agents that my 15 year old niece was doing a summer internship for a literary agent in Los Angeles. And so I said to my 15-year-old niece, you want to hand her this? <laughs> and so she got her the pitch and she immediately said yes. And no so kidding. I mean, that is just, I mean, come on. That's like children a, helping. Can you imagine? I love it though. I mean, you know, because what that tells me is not only does your niece have a tremendous amount of influence, but... <laughs> <laughs> But that there was a real need for this. Like if an agent sees it from two, I assume your writing companion was unknown at the time as well, right? Yep. Yep. All right. So two unknown authors, you know, with an idea, no credibility whatsoever, except for the fact that you were once, you know, teenage girls. That that was uh, it. That was it, right? I don't even oh. have a daughter. <laughs> so. But but there must have been there must have been a need. So she must have seen like an unmet need and realized, hey, I've got I've got gold in my hands. Yeah. No one was more shocked than I was. Yeah. That was well, wonderful. Well, that's awesome. That's awesome. And then you kind of pivot from there, going to writing fiction, which I know you mentioned you prefer. Yep. Yep. I, so I always wanted to write a novel, says everyone. And I luckily, because of this project, I already had an agent. So I, you know, I came up with a draft of that and sent that to her. So that was that was sort of my entree to that is because I had an agent already. Right. Right. And is that a girl named Digit? A girl named Digit. Yeah. So that was your first time writing something completely solo, it sounds like. Yes. It was very fun to write. Yeah. What did you learn about yourself during the writing process? Uh, that's a great question. It was fun to go back to that time. She's 17 years old. And I learned that when you are writing fiction, you are writing an autobiography. Like no matter what you're writing, you're, so much of yourself and your life seeps into that story. And I was trying to write a story about a teenage math genius. And let me just tell you, one thing that I am not is a math genius. I never was. But I, you know, so much of my perspective and I sort of revisited my whole high school experience, feeling like a little bit of an outsider in the in crowd. And I just realized that I had an ability to share that. Like, it's not easy to take that step. If you write a story, you've made yourself very vulnerable. So I was happy to know that I could do that. Yeah, that's a one thing, a few things that I hear often and, and just have experienced myself. If you really want to make it as a writer, as an author, you've got to be persistent, number one. 
Yep. I'm going to add lucky to the list because you mentioned that earlier. Yes. But you also have to make yourself vulnerable because, you know, even if you're writing fiction, I think especially if you're writing fiction, you are putting yourself a little bit of your spirit and your soul into these characters. And to make them real, you have to make them identifiable for other people. And one way to do that is to, you know, try to create them and craft them with empathy. But you're making yourself vulnerable because, again, you're opening yourself up a little bit. And I know just from, you know, the novels that I've written, there are definitely pieces of me in each of these characters. Now, there are pieces of me that are, I mean, not pieces of me, but there are parts of these characters that are completely fabricated, you know. I haven't murdered anybody, for example. Um, It's early. It's a relief to know that probably. And yes, you're right. It is early. It is early. And I think you need to get to a certain part of your own personal development where you're ready to say, yeah, this is what it is. And I sometimes will read a novel and I'll think that was such a great story, but I wish the author had gone there. You know, I, you can feel when people are playing it safe. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that the brave thing to do is just, you know, bleed on the page. Right. Well, that that also, again, you're starting your your writing, you know, at 37. And, you know, you've had a lot of life experience, you know, up to that point, you know, a lot of different types of experiences, careers, family, etc. And I imagine that's important too to have a life that you have lived, that you can reflect on and, and lean into uh, as you write. Yeah, I, I honestly, when I was 30, I could not have written anything that I've written. I didn't know, I didn't have a perspective at that point. I was just sort of, you know, juggling my life. And so I don't regret, you know, not having started earlier. I don't think I could have done it. You know, yeah. you, you bloom when you bloom. Exactly. That's a good perspective to have. And you can't force it, right? You can't force the words and the stories out of you. Nope. It kind of has to come. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of stories, let's talk about Nora Goes Off Script, because I'm fascinated by the premise of this. Tell me, what what can you share with me about Nora Goes Off Script? So it is the story of Nora Hamilton, who is a made-for-TV romance writer. So think the Hallmark Channel. And she, her husband leaves her, and she writes a more serious screenplay about her divorce just to get it off her chest. And that is picked up as a feature film. And they film part of it on location at her home. And she ends up falling in love with the man who plays her husband in the movie. So I definitely feel some Hallmark vibes coming here, right? All the vibes. All the vi- all the Hallmark vibes. And I and I, I told you before we started recording, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for a good Hallmark movie. Yeah, I didn't know um, if you were going to admit it again. But okay. oh, no, I'll admit it. And I, my here audience knows my audience knows what they have, you know, at the helm of this <laughs> operation. <laughs> you know, I can tell you. Fallen Angel, my favorite Christmas one with Gary Sinise. They're all, I mean, and and I tend to watch more of the Christmas ones, the Valentine's ones. Sure, they're good. The one with Betty White, but the lost Valentine, I think it was. I mean, I'll tear up at the end of these. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Oh yeah, Um, good. You know, and I even started to write one at one point because I wanted it to be kind of a, but it was more of a parody. It was like a parody of like a Hallmark movie where you're using the same tropes, but in slightly different ways. I would love to read that. Oh, yes. Well, that one's, you know, it's uh, we'll call that a work in progress. It's called Karen Hates Christmas. Hmm. I like <laughs> but, it. Um, yeah. You know, it's uh, it's a little different. I don't think Hallmark would pick it up. Let's just say I think it would have to be like Lifetime because they do their own version of the those types of stories. But what fascinates you about those types of movies, the Hallmark movies? What fascinates, first of all, I love them. 
And then I want to not love them because I want to think I'm better than that. And I am not better than that. And it turns out my husband is also not better than that. He'll just sit down, you know, an hour into one, he'll sit down and watch the whole rest of it. What fascinates me, of course, is that it's the same movie over and over again. Yeah. You know, it is, it is scientifically designed to climax right before the last commercial break. I mean, I, I find it fascinating. And what I started thinking about when I was watching a bunch of these is who was writing these movies? You know, was it some very romantic kind of person who just, you know, loved all these love stories and these almost kisses? Or was it something that was happening on a corporate level where you just had, you know, conference room where people were, you know, throwing in the elements and, and coming up with a movie? So I started thinking about Nora and I thought it would be interesting to have a romance channel screenwriter who's never been in love. So she just does this so she can feed her children and she can support her deadbeat husband. And I thought it would be fun to take a person like that and just run her through like a real romance and see how she reacted and how that sort of compared to what she was writing. Interesting. So she wasn't in love with her husband. She'd never real romance with him. Okay. Nope. Nope. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder why she married the guy. Well, she married him. You know, it kind of all comes out in the book, but there's a kind of guy who has so much confidence and he shines that confidence on you that you think I'm so lucky that he likes me. I must be in love with him too. There it's sort of, it's a little bit of a narcissistic personality, but it sucks you in. And then that person becomes tired of you and it's not real love. Mm. So she had no sort of give and take with her husband. She did all the giving. And so once she meets somebody who really wants to hear what she has to say, who's interested in how she operates her life, she falls for him in a very hard way. Interesting. Now is, I know I can't ask you too many questions about the story. I'm just, I'll ask you this one. You can tell me if you can answer it or not. Is he available at the time? You know, is he attainable? Well, he's the former sexiest man alive. So some might say he's not attainable, but he's single. Well, that's what I was wondering. I mean, is yeah. was there anyone else at home that, you know, was any other reasons why he no, couldn't? He doesn't have anything at home. He everyone around him works for him. Ah. So, yeah. So he he just really loves being at her home. Yeah. He can't believe she knows how to roast a chicken. You know, it's just like the very she's a very simple, very practical person. And that's part of the attraction. She's a person who's really engaged in her life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when usually with these Hallmark type movies. Somebody's single, but they're usually single because, you know, it's, it's usually someone died, right? Someone said they're like widowed or a widower or something like that. So much death. Yes. Lots Very of clean. death. It's a clean way to get rid of somebody. It's, it's clean. And in some ways, it's not kind of real life because, you know, it's, it's very rare that somebody went through a messy divorce or something like that. It's usually something a little bit nicer. But yeah, I mean, you <laughs> like chose death. the like death. Yeah, death <laughs> yeah. can be nice, but it's like. You know, I guess there's less of a tension in death because that's out of the character. Well, I guess everything's out of the character's control, but you chose to have her kind of going through a divorce, which which I think is like the big D word, I think, is something that usually these channels kind of avoid a little bit. I know Hallmark does because of kind of more of like a spiritual faith based background that, you know, that kind of runs that channel. But that's the whole point of this book is that you know, true love is true love, but it's a lot messier than what you can fit into a 120 minute made for television movie. You know, it's people, what surprised me in writing this book is just how much baggage two 40 year olds bring into a relationship. You don't just like go out and eat a steak. You've got your children at home. You've got your 
parents you're taking care of, you bring a lot of stuff into it. And it's no longer just the two of you falling in love. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I'm curious if you get bothered by this, like I do, when you're watching, let's say the Christmas ones, because those are the ones that I'm more attuned to. You ever notice how like everyone's dressed in obviously like winter clothes, but the scenery in the background is clear that it's like either spring or summer. It's absolutely not cold outside. Like you can tell on people's faces that it's cold outside. It's 80 degrees where they're filming and they're all in their red and green coats. Also of note of these Christmas movies, they have a different coat in every scene. Who owns 30 winter coats? (laughs) Especially because they're making a living, you know, as cupcake salespeople. (laughs) Like, where are they getting all this money? There's not a lot of margin in cupcakes. There's one Christmas movie. Tell me if you've seen this one. She is a custom wreath designer. Mm -hmm. She only works in December. Yeah. Like how many custom wreaths do you sell? Right. And do do you sell them like a thousand dollars a pop? You know, because that's the only way to like, you know, it's nuts. But I worry that they're going to have heat stroke. Like I feel for the actors. (laughs) I'm like, there's hopefully there's like some trailer with like a cooling fan somewhere. Right. You know, like they do yeah. at football games, you know, where they have like the, like the big air conditioners on people. Like I, it scares me. Honestly, it scares me. I think you've ruined those Christmas movies for a lot of people now. This you is- know, if that aspect is what ruins the movie for them, then, you know, maybe I'm doing them a service. I don't know. The implausible storylines. Yeah. <laughs> but I love them. I mean, I love on. them. I love them. And you're right. They recycle the same movie over and over. I mean, I've seen four different versions of the one where or the story where you know somebody switches apartments you know does like an apartment swap you know (laughs) one goes to the big city the other goes to the small town someone falls in love with somebody's sister yeah which is fine which is fine i like the princess ones too you know the princess ones are good yeah they're good but i digress in the spirit of getting to know more about you as a person uh annabelle i'd love to know what were some of your favorite tv shows when you were growing up Well, I liked all the things that everybody watched, you know, Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. I'm 52. But I also liked some dark stuff like Quincy, Medical oh. Examiner, and The Rockford Files. I was watching The Rockford Files last night. Were you really? I was really, you know, I, it wasn't by choice. My wife had it on. And I, I love, first of all, I love the theme song. Yes, you know, that I little keyboard too. synthesizer in the beginning. It's a show my grandfather used to watch. He used to watch that in Quincy. He was a doctor. So he loved all the medical stuff. But uh, yeah, yeah, the Rockford Files was great. Yeah. And Columbo. I mean, I will say that of my lifetime, my favorite viewing experience is Columbo. I could just settle into that and for a week. I've seen everyone five times, even the crappy ones in the late 80s to the early 90s when they did get crappy later. They did. Oh, man, it was bad. Do you have a favorite Columbo episode? I do. Which one? I like the one where the guy murders his friend by getting him to answer the phone and say, I watched it last night. It's called, it's called dial M for murder. And do you remember the, the Rosebud? Rosebud. Cause he was a big, like citizen Kane fan. He had the sled on his door on on his wall. It's the best. It's the absolute best. Oh no. And you know, there's a very young Ed Begley jr. In that episode. Is that right? Yep. He works at the animal control place, wherever they're holding the two dogs or the dog's names were, um, Abbott and Costello or something like that, right? Wow. No, no, I literally watched it the other <laughs> night. I, I love Columbo. I love Columbo. He's the best. He's the He's best. He's the best. Oh, you know? oh God. God. 
my favorite, I have a few, but there's one called Murder Under Glass, which was directed by Jonathan Demme, who did Silence of the Lambs, The Talking Heads, Stop Making Sense. And wow. he, it's with Louis Jordan. He's the bad guy. And it's the one where, I don't know if you're as familiar with The Godfather Part Two as I am, but, no. <laughs> but Frankie Five Angels <laughs> is, uh, is the guy who gets killed. That was his character name in Godfather 2. And Columbo has to speak Italian to this guy's nephew. And it is clear as day. I mean, I grew up, my grandmother was 100% Italian. He does, he's not, he's speaking gibberish. He's not speaking Italian. He's saying, <laughs> basta, basta. He's like, I don't think I've seen this one. Oh, no, it, it is great. And it's probably one of the better episodes. So that would be, yeah, fest, Murder Under Glass. Okay. And oh, it's awesome. It's awesome. They're all on he, Netflix. Yes. Yeah. And so I spend my nights watching Columbo. That is so um, fun. Well, there you go. There we have it. How about this? Do you have a favorite Hallmark movie or one of your favorite Hallmark movies that you can mention? No, I don't. I like them all equally. I like the Christmas ones where we fall in love and we discover the true meaning of Christmas. Of course. Which is falling in love, it seems. Yes. No, I like them all equally. All right. There you go. Easy answer. Safe answer. Yep. I'm going to go with, not that you asked me. I'd like now, to know. Now I'm not going to remember the name of it. It's the one where the soldier gets a card from a young woman in a small town. Her dad is played by Ed Asner. And, it, and he's got to bring home like a dog tag to somebody because somebody in his unit was killed in Afghanistan. So he comes home. Now he comes to this town. And he falls in love with the woman. Oh, he saves her dad from, from getting hit by a car. He saves Ed Asner's life. And so now it's Ed Asner's job to get her hooked up with this guy because the guy she's dating, is he's a big loser. And I wish I could remember the name of the movie. Hopefully before the end of this one, I will. This sounds like a knockoff of an Ashton Kutcher movie. Is it Ashton Kutcher? He goes, no, no, no. It's not Ashton Kutcher. Also cute. Oh, yeah. Oh, is it the guy from High School Musical? No, no, no. This It's nobody's. I wish my wife were here because she'd tell me what it was. But I'll think about it before the end of our time together. All right. So there you go. That, that is my favorite one. All right. So uh, question number three, then. In what I'm ways? So is Benny... No, don't be scared. No one's left crying uh, one of these interviews yet. Although there is still time, <laughs> just like I could still murder somebody. In what ways, if any, have you found writing to be therapeutic for you? Oh, in what ways? In all the ways. In all the ways. Well, tell in me all... more. All the way. I mean, I would be in a straitjacket. I find, I mean, I think my entire life, I process everything that happens through connecting it to something that's already happened or something that's going to happen or turning it into a story. And I have a lot of things that rattle around in my mind. And until I actually sit down, open my laptop and write about them, I write a column every other week. And that's generally what that is, is just getting out whatever the thing is that's rattling around in my mind. I think that it has helped me to see people in, more in the gray area. I think that writing has made it easy for me to give up judgment. You know, every villain has some great characteristic. I just, I think it is, it's a very healthy way for me to process my life, my worries, and everything that's going on around me. Yeah. I mean, there, it's, you know, I've been in and out of therapy situations, working with therapists and just kind of trying to find, you know, more about more out about myself. And it's probably no coincidence that so many exercises that therapists give you 
or coaches give you are writing based, you know, journaling, writing based, kind of getting in touch with kind of who you are, because there is that introspective element to writing, I think is critically important and does help you understand a bit about who you are. Yeah, I think so. I mean, even in this book, Nora goes off script. Her 10-year-old son is coping with divorce and abandonment and worry about what's going to happen to his family. I'm not kidding. I wrote this entire book, sent, sold it. It was printing. And then I thought, oh God, that's what happened to me when I was 10. I mean, it honestly wasn't until I'd written the story that I realized how much of my own experience I moved through by writing it. Did your parents divorce when you were 10? They divorced when I was five. Okay. My dad moved to England when I was 10. And that was just really like difficult for me. Wow. So this but I had no of... idea I was writing that story. Yeah, no, but that's, that's cool that you kind of put those pieces together. Like in, in hindsight, retrospect, I don't know what the right word is. Yeah. I'm not good with words sometimes. Um, <laughs> this podcast isn't about that anyways. No, it's not. It's not. No. All right. So I have the answer to the question. Oh, and here it is. Does this look familiar to you at all? The Christmas card. How have I not seen this? Yes. Two strangers brought together by words of love. I, I'm sold. I'm, I may watch this today. That's, that could be your homework. Thank that you. That could be your homework to watch the Christmas card. All right. Now the questions get a little bit more tricky. So uh, here we go. How do you feel when you're staring at a blank sheet of paper or a blank computer screen and you've got to write something, but what's in front of you is blank? Any emotions you experience? I do feel the normal panic that anyone would feel. And, but I do not do well in a panic kind of a situation. So if I'm writing my column, I say to myself, you know, you don't have to write this. You could just tell them you don't have anything. And that sort of frees me up. If I'm starting a book, I will think no one's ever going to read this anyways. Why don't you just start? I don't ever sit down to, you know, write something brilliant. I mean, that is, that's to me such a non-starter. So I just sit down to write a little bit of something, add a little bit of something to it. And I try to feel as loose and not terrified as I can. Cause that, I think that panic feeling, which I do get is something that you got to talk yourself out of immediately. Yeah. Interesting. That's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I would imagine the pressure that sitting down in front of you know, the, the keyboard thinking to yourself, I have to write something. I have to write a bestseller would just put so much weight on your shoulders. It would, it would. And for me, my best writing is when I'm feeling casual. So if I start trying to act smart, like I don't know a lot of big words, I'm not going to give you a lot of big words. If I try to act like that kind of person, like, Oh, look, I'm Margaret Atwood now. Like that's, that's not who I am. So I can only tell the kind of story I can tell. Right. And that, you know, you can't like step into another persona, you know, you have to be you yeah. um, or else it won't come across as authentic. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that readers pick up on that. Yeah, no, totally. Being false. Yeah. How about lessons about publishing that you may have learned the hard way? So maybe thinking back to, you know, those the first books, because I know the learning curve is very steep, but can you think about anything that you were surprised about during the process or, or that you felt you learned the hard way? It's, it's just that all publishing experiences are not going to be equal. And sometimes I think that my first three books were published like, this is fun. Let's publish these books. But I don't feel like my publisher was really that enthusiastic about it. There wasn't a lot of support or certainly advertisement or promotion or any of that stuff 
And I, that sort of fell on me, which I realized too late and I didn't really do it. Oops. And then this project, Nora Putnam has just been really enthusiastic and supportive. It's a totally different experience. Like they're calling you and asking you to have me on my, on your podcast. So I think, you know, when, when authors have a book out on submission and there's interest from different publishing houses, it's not the question you need to, I don't know if you can ask it or just sort of figure it out is how enthusiastic are they about my book? Because if your publisher is enthusiastic about your book, they're going to do a ton to support you. And this experience has just been, you know, it's like they're throwing me a birthday party all the time. It's been amazing. I can't believe it. Yeah, that's refreshing to hear because so often, you know, I hear from people who say, you know what, my publisher, they're doing some things for me, but I'm I'm doing the bulk of it, right? I'm doing the bulk of the promotion, the advertising, the the reaching out to, you know, bookstores and things like that. But it seems like that you have a really good you know, a good uh, enthusiastic publicity group. Well, I'm super grateful for them. But, you know, it's also a business. Like when I was publishing A Girl Named Digit, they were also publishing Lois Lowry's, maybe it was The Giver. Like this is the biggest book that ever <laughs> came out. So in a world of finite publicity dollars, like you're not going to give it to a girl named Digit for God's sakes. So that's what you have to remember. It's not personal. It's not like, oh, my editor doesn't like me anymore. It's they're making a decision. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to look about it. Look at it. All right. Two more, two more. Let me wrap. How do you feed your inner child, Annabelle? Mm, I love that. (laughs) You know, I, the first thing I thought of when you asked that is I have a great niece whose name happens to be Annabelle. And when I see her, I feel that my inner child is just like, you know, crawling around on hands and knees and, and pretending like we have popsicles and being with little children, I think is a wonderful way to feed your inner child. I also like to go through the woods. When I'm in the woods, I feel like I'm connected to that nine-year-old version of myself, who, by the way, was never in the woods when I was nine years old. But yes, I like to be outside. Yeah. What is it about being outside that helps you connect to your younger self, even though that you know nine-year-old Annabelle wasn't you know really exploring the woods all that much? I think that... Your inner child, I think, is your real self. That's that's how I see myself. Like I am a bunch of nonsense piled on that nine-year-old child. And like my job is to get back to being that nine-year-old child. And when I'm in the woods, particularly if I'm alone in the woods, it is so quiet, except for the sounds of the birds and the rustling of the leaves. And I and not too quiet because there are those sounds, but I can finally hear myself think. And, you know, it's, there aren't even cars going by. So I, I think I connect that way. Very cool. Very cool. So now let's think about that nine-year-old child again. God. And if you could, uh, I know these get deep. Um, I lie down. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Whatever makes you comfortable, lie Thank down. You. Thank I you. can turn on the white noise machine so no one else can hear us. Yes. We're almost um, out of time. <laughs> but thinking about that nine-year-old child, if you could whisper some words of advice into her ear. What would you tell her? What would you tell that nine-year-old child? Oh, I would say you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Just keep, keep going. It's all, you know, it's not going to work out right away, but it's going to be okay. And I just remember being, you know, not even nine and then a teenager and thinking, am I ever going to make anything of myself? And now from where I'm sitting, it's such a stupid question anyways. Like, what does that even mean to make anything of yourself? You know, I'm, I'm a friend, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm, you know, I'm connected to people. So of course I've made something of myself. Yeah. Well, very cool. Good advice to end on. 
Uh, the book, of course, is Nora Goes Off Script. The author is Annabelle Monahan. Annabelle, do you have a website, social media, any anything you want to throw out there for people who want to connect with you? I do. I'm at AnnabelleMonahan.com. It's my website. And then I'm Annabelle Monahan at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All right. There's Very a G good. in Monahan. There is a G in Mon. That's right. It's one of those yes. names that, you know, sounds I have Monahans in, in our extended family. So Do they um, have a G? Uh, they do have a G. They Ooh, do they do have a G. Yes. From up from, from Massachusetts through marriage. So, you know, I'm sure we're not blood related. But well, uh, I'm not a Monahan anyways. This is my married name. Do I look Irish to you? Well, you know, you never can tell. Yeah, you, you know, can. With you the can. webcam lighting, you know, I wouldn't want to, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe English somehow. I don't know. Welsh? No, I don't know. I'm bad Half at that. Spanish. Oh, really? I don't look Italian, but it's it's what I'm mostly, it's what I identify as too. Anyway, well, this has been a fun conversation, Annabelle. This Thank you so, so much. much. Fun. Thank you. I forgot we were doing this. I just thought we were shooting the breeze. There you go. That's That's the goal. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. 